0: Seth D. Jones currently pastors a congregational church in Midcoast, Maine. He will soon be moving to Brooklyn, New York. He recently received his Doctor of Ministry degree from Portland Seminary in Oregon, focused on extraordinary spiritual experiences. The resulting project was built around his participation in a psychedelic study with Johns Hopkins NYU for religious professionals and uh, psilocybin, which he participated in at the end of 2018. Seth has also served churches in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, Yellowstone National Park. He has a Master's of Arts in Religious Studies from United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, and a Master of Divinity from Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. And prior to ministry, Seth taught Tai Chi, worked in the financial industry, and studied the weird and unusual. Those studies still continue. He describes himself as a father and spouse, a dog companion, a guitarist, and trying to finish a book on extraordinary spiritual experiences. Seth, welcome to NDE Radio.
1: Thank you, Lee. It's great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Oh, it's it's great to have a fellow main pastor on the show. I think yes. <laughs> uh, I think Peter Panagore and Matty McDonald have been the only other members of that little oh, club.
1: Well, I'm glad to be a part of it. That's great.
0: <laughs> so. <laughs> so, Seth, tell us a little about how your spiritual path evolved up and down and up again from childhood onward till today.
1: Sure, uh, it's a it's a circuitous path, and uh, I am um, I. Grew up in the Congregational Church in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and uh, while I was a part of that, I um, had various uh, experiences as a child and a young person that um, I felt like uh, were could easily be considered mystical experiences, and um, and. Uh, one of those mystical experiences was being baptized at around the age 16. And when I was baptized, I, um, I, uh, a few months after that, I felt a calling to the ministry, uh, such as it is as, um, those things go, uh, and, uh, was beginning to go towards that. And, um, while I was in college, I for all practical purposes forgot my calling <laughs> until a couple years after college and I remembered again and um, ended up going to seminary and at that time I was not attached to a church. And so I just went to seminary thinking that's what you do to become a minister. And during my first time at seminary uh, in the early 90s, I ended up um, Losing my faith while I was there. And uh, by the time I was done, I was deeply involved in a um, martial arts, new age sort of school that did a lot of uh, depth work and breath work and sort of uh, deep meditation kind of things along with uh, martial arts, particularly Tai Chi. And uh, that became a commune, and so my wife and I uh, lived in this commune for about six and a half years, and were a part of the school for about six years prior to that. Mm. And uh, and as many commune situations, particularly in that kind of setting, uh, become uh, the sort of went from a really cool experience for about the first year and a half to pretty much becoming a cult by the time it was all said and done Mm. and uh, which um, turned me into uh, an atheist or uh, somebody trying to be an atheist might be a better way to put it (laughs) because I failed miserably at it. (laughs) And uh, throughout all these times I was studying, uh, I was reading strange things and, you know, uh, Minnesota is, um, sort of a, uh, vortex for a lot of strange, uh, events and experiences. And so I was reading a lot about those and studying, uh, unusual things, everything from UFOs to, to energy and body, um, stuff and energetics and things. And, uh, and then in my atheist time, I really sort of just tried to focus on thinking clearly and critically about all kinds of things. So I sort of developed, uh, I, I tried to develop a, a skeptical mindset. And interestingly, that skeptical mindset led me out of our, our commune experience uh, and into back into the church. And so we joined a church uh, in Minneapolis. And um, while I was there, I remembered again, that's right. I was going to go into the ministry. Mm -hmm. And so I had a, I had a really great, um, great pastor who, who helped sort of guide me into that direction slowly without just jumping in feet first. And so That's what led me to get my Master's of Divinity from Luther Seminary in St. Paul. And uh, the first church I served was in Yellowstone National Park, just right on the northeast corner of Yellowstone National Park. Wow,
0: what a setting.
1: Oh, it was gorgeous. It was amazing. And then um, after about two years there, I came out here to uh, Rockland, Maine, and uh, and so, you know, when 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 this study came along with Johns Hopkins, uh, I had a friend who said to me, based on my past experience and conversations we had, he said, you'd be a great uh, candidate for this. Mm-hmm. And so I applied for it. And it that study itself became sort of a, 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 a um, extraordinary spiritual experience for me. Yeah which is what led me to do my doctor of ministry on that subject. So hmm. and H- had you done any psychedelics uh,
0: before the uh, Johns Hopkins experience?
1: I, I did not. And in fact, to get into the study, you had to be uh, a, 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 psychedelic virgin, such as it is. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, um, and so, uh, so they, they part of part of the, Qualification for the study is no prior experience with psychedelics. So, wow. yeah. And so um, that was my first experience with them. And uh, uh-huh. so
0: when you, you mentioned um, when you were baptized at 16, were there other uh, mystical experiences as a child that you had?
1: Yeah. You know, I am, I, I have, I have, quite a few I used to have um these experiences where I I, I felt like I was sort of seeing underneath the structure of the things around me and so I couldn't really tell what was going on but it was a, a sort of somewhat transcendent experience where I'd see movement in in uh the things around me and I'd sort of be incorporated into that. It's very hard to describe, but but more, more to the point, I would say one of my later, later in my life, when I was a teenager, I had several experiences in the outdoors. One was a backpacking trip uh, when I was in the Beartooth mountains. And at the beginning of the trip, I managed to get these huge blisters on my heels. It was a 15-day trip. I got these blisters right at the beginning of the trip, and they became infected. Mm. And I had to do this hike. It was a group of us. We had to go the distance, basically. And so it was unbelievably painful. And I just remember being at the top of this ridge way up in the Beartooth Mountains at a place called Round Top Lakes. And there was snow everywhere. We were hiking in deep snow. You know, I was up on this ridge and the pain was unbelievable. And then something shifted. It was a sunny day and I felt like my body dissolved into the environment around me. And this lasted, I don't know how long it lasted, 15, 20 minutes Mm. where I was a perception of the environment moving through a space rather than a body it was very very unifying a very yep. unified experience merging with the consciousness around you yeah there you go that's a perfect way of saying it yes it was as if I had become the landscape and the landscape had become me it was quite powerful it's you know it's like all these experiences they sort of rise to the level of becoming really real you know. Mm-hmm the yeah. really real uh so, and then,
0: so, so in a ahead. way you you it, it sounds almost psychedelic you, yeah you were you weren't quite a virgin when you uh went to john's Hopkins. no
1: right yeah <laughs> and then and then this this one I, I i like to tell this story not because i'm gonna come down hard on on you know we're surrounded by fairies and elves and all these things but uh this is a very strange experience that i also had in the mountains in um jasper national park up in canada Hmm. i was on a backpacking trip again a couple years later and i walked into a part of the forest and this had nothing to do with anything it just was something that happened we were on a layover there were like six of us on this trip and i just went for a hike by myself and i came into this pine forest and it was as if the whole pine forest sort of became this kind of sanctuary or cathedral and uh, the whole place changed, and I could feel it change. I was like, wow, this is a strange space, and as I was walking into it, I saw these little people. They were the little people, Wow. and and they're like looking out from behind the trees, and then they'd run to another tree. There were like two or three of them. I would say based on further research, they were like brownies maybe or Mm -hmm. uh, forest fairies. I'm not sure, but I went back to my campsite, and my camp counselor said, and he grew up, his family were uh, Roma from Hungary, from the mountains in Hungary. Yeah, He said, you saw something. What did you see? <laughs> I said, I don't know if I really want to tell you what I saw, because <laughs> it's really weird. And so he said, come on, tell me, tell me. And so I told him, and he was like, oh, you got to see the little people. Uh, I've always wanted to see the little people. Uh-oh. So. <laughs> yeah, I, the, and the, I think it qualifies as an extraordinary spiritual experience. I oh, absolutely. That's you know, terrific. They, so I, and it's a fun story. Well, tell us how you uh,
0: came to be part of Johns Hopkins experiments and tell us about the experiment.
1: This study took about six years to complete, if I'm not mistaken. And it was a total of 24 people who went through it. And it was a joint study with Johns Hopkins and New York University, and it was designed for religious professionals. And so the study basically was to generate or invite or or increase the potentiality for mystical experiences in people who are already primed for such things, namely religious professionals. And so this sort of ongoing study was to research that, and I didn't know about it. A friend of mine, who's also a pastor, saw some a post on Facebook about it and saw a little ad for it. And he sent mm-hmm. it along to me and he said, you'd be perfect for this. This was in, <laughs> in the, I want to say, in April of 2018. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, why not? I don't have a lot of internal things against anything like this. So I was like, I'll see what it's about. So I sent an email and almost immediately they called back and I went through a brief interview process that led you to the next level and then I cleared that and then they fly you down to to uh, Baltimore to the Johns Hopkins facility and uh, do a full intake and uh, medical exam and all kinds of stuff and it is really intense I uh was surprised at how intensive it was. And part of what they were looking for, number one is they wanted you to be healthy. And I think it says a lot that it took them six years to find 24 willing spiritual religious professionals who were healthy enough, willing, and had no prior experience to do this. So, (laughs) That would be Um, a major
0: limiting factor, I think. Yeah,
1: right. But it took me a little while to get through the health part of it, not because I'm an unhealthy guy, but I had some blood pressure issues that I had to handle in order to be accepted. And then I was finally accepted into the study and uh, went through the study in December of 2018 and January of 2019. And it's two sessions. They do two sessions of high-dose uh, psilocybin, magic mushrooms is what psilocybin is. And upon being accepted into the study, you are assigned two guides. And so the guides uh, met with me on Zoom several times before I actually went down to Baltimore. And then we met in person in Baltimore and then up in person again when I came down for the actual study. And so my guides knew me very, very well by the time I was actually stepping into this whole thing. So they were able to help talk me through things and, you know, process stuff. And the first session, both were incredibly powerful experiences and very different from one another. The first one was sort of a, an opening into the beauty of the universe and how basically. Everything is constructed on this sort of matrix of beauty, if you will. And it was was really deep and meaningful. And I, I had this, and we can get into the details of it if you want, after I describe this whole thing. After the experience, I had this deep, deep sense of the interconnectedness of, as Jesus says, the living and the dead. You know, I, I had this experience with with a woman who had died, who I was very close friends with, and uh, she she met me in my experience, and so I came away with my first experience uh, with this deep sense of the continuation of individual consciousness beyond this world. This is why I'm on your show. You know, this is where <laughs> the indie experience and the psychedelic experience crossover in a big way absolutely and and after that first experience i was sort of on this sort of intellectual and, and spiritual high from it and i had this whole plan i had a book all planned out i had all these ideas about it and all of them were deconstructed and kind of shattered by my second experience which was this incredibly embodied painful difficult hard ride through all kinds of body stuff that was not comfortable at all. And various beings that came to me, I became these beings. The way I like to put it, my first experience rewired my consciousness. And my second experience, recast my sense of self and body in a huge way. And so when I came away from my second experience, I uh, had a whole different <laughs> view of things. And one of the ways I put it is that it felt like my second experience burned out my sixth and seventh chakras. Mm. And so, you know, it just yeah. kind of took off the top of my head. And um,
0: <laughs> Well, let's go back yeah, to the first yeah. experience and, and tell us what you saw. Now they had you lying down and you're blindfolded, I guess.
1: So yeah, yeah. This is all
0: internalized.
1: It is all internalized. They put you uh, on blindfold, and then they have headphones where you listen to curated music. They actually, they've been so one of the one of my guides was a guy named William Richards. William Richards has been involved in psychedelic studies since the beginning, and he knew and was involved with all the people back in the '60s, and he um was deeply involved in psychedelic studies then and now, and throughout his time and in communication with other people, they've curated music to sort of track the experience. And so they have a playlist. You can go out onto Spotify and type in Johns Hopkins psychedelic playlist and get the playlist. And so that's what the music is that's playing. And then, yeah, they have you lie down. I'm a pretty active person. I can't, I I can't lie down for six hours. And that's sort of what you're committing to with this stuff. And so at the beginning, they do this sort of very kind of ritualized presentation of the psilocybin, which, by the way, is a blue pill. I think that's funny given all the talk about red pill and the culture and the matrix. Yeah. Right. And so it's a blue pill and they present it to you in this nice little cup container. I was in a nice room, you know, comfortable space they've created soft lighting. And uh, so it's not a hospital room. It's not like you're not right. You know, it takes about 20 minutes for the stuff to start to take effect. And for my first experience I began to, you know hear music differently. The music was sort of broke apart into these this deeper depth. I began to see these shapes, the the geometric forms and the shapes that people often see in uh, under the influence. And that went on for a while. I just, I don't know how long. And I kind of got bored. and I even told my my guides. I was like, okay, this is cool. You know, I, I, I like this, but is it going to be this way for six hours? Because I'm kind of bored now. <laughs> and my guide, Bill Richards, he said, yeah, you know, give it a few minutes. <laughs> the things will change. And, uh, and so, and he was right. About 20 minutes later, everything just kind of went off the deep end for my first journey. And my first journey, I there was a cat that led me to the top of this black onyx spiral staircase, this huge staircase that went down into the earth. And I had a guide with me. I perceived it as sort of an angelic presence with me, taking me down the stairs. And we went down these stairs. And as we got deeper and deeper, the, uh, we were sort of going under water all these colors moving through the water. And then at a certain point, everything just sort of flashed and the entire universe became this shimmering cathedral. And it was made out of these these in, these multidimensional blocks that glowed different colors. And some of the colors were off the spectrum. I wouldn't have been able to name them fantastically beautiful. One of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And we went deeper and deeper and the cathedral got more and more clear as we went deeper and deeper. And he took me to this, I call it a transfer device, but really it was a place to lie down deep under this river and um, transparent sides. It was like a coffin, but it also wasn't And he had me lay down, and it was like an ego death. I could feel myself leaving, leaving this life. I wouldn't say I was leaving my body, though. I didn't feel like my, it didn't feel like my understanding of an out of body experience. And then I sort of passed through to another side. And when I came to on the other side, this woman, who I was very close friends with. She died of lung cancer. She and I had become very close friends for about five years. She was a congregant of my church. And uh, I had mentioned that I've done counseling, spiritual counseling with people who were dying. And she and I met once a week for about a year and a half before she died, just to talk about death and dying. And as is often the case, I learned far more from her than <laughs> I could tell her. And so, um, and she met me on the other side and I burst into tears when I saw her. It was just this huge relief, release of grief. And that was sort grief sort of tracked through this whole experience in part because I've done so many funerals here in Maine, over a hundred since I started here 13 years ago. And a lot of them were congregants of the church, most well over half. And so there's a lot of unprocessed grief I have about that. And a lot of that sort of was tied in. And Jean met me on the other She was a very funny woman. She met me on the other side and she said, okay, stop crying. You need to stop crying. That's it's not, it's not what you need to do here. And uh, just follow me. And so I was like, okay, all right. And so she took me through these undercrofts of the, of the shimmering cathedral, the vast cathedral. And it was like these smaller spaces with these bricks and everything. And then we came up and out and we came out onto a cobblestone street. And I knew when we came out that it was Paris, the Champs-Élysées was not nearby, but it was a street off of the, that area and um it was late at night it was early morning everything was closed there were still lights on on the street but all the chairs were on the tables on the cafes and everything it was unbelievably beautiful as beautiful as the cathedral and probably a part of it's a part of the cathedral obviously and uh and she said this is pretty much where i hang out now and um i said are you telling me that heaven is Paris at night? She said, yeah, yeah. Heaven is Paris at night. This is where I hang out. And way in the back, my ego in all of this, my sense of who I was and myself was like way back and to the right, which as an aside here, one of the lessons I took out of my first experience is the problem isn't that we have an ego. The problem is that the ego doesn't know its place. And so in this case, my ego's place was sort of back in a way as sort of a witness of all of this. And uh, my, my, my self sort of in the background was saying, God, does this mean I'm going to have to learn French? Cause I don't <laughs> I haven't learned French. And, um, I'm learning French now, though, and so um, <laughs> just in case. Yeah, right. And, and here uh, I
0: thought it was Hebrew that uh, they spoke in
1: heaven. That's right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then after that, I kind of came to. This was after like four hours, three or four hours. Yeah. And then I spent a lot of time talking things through and around with my with my guides. After that, the interesting thing about magic mushroom psilocybin. I think this is probably true with most psychedelics. When it's done, it just, everything just, you just come back and you're back in normal space. And so that was my first experience. You know, I came away with a really powerful sense that I'd encountered, as I said before, the really real that I'd, gotten a glimpse of beyond the veil and it had a confirming effect both in my belief about the structure of the world about beauty Mm -hmm. and at the same time it changed a lot of my understandings as well one of the big sort of confirming things was the sense of the continuity of life beyond this life
0: and then how long after was it that you took uh, your second
1: trip? One month. It was one month.
0: And I think you told me they gave you double the dose Mm. the first one.
1: The first dose was, if I remember correctly, they did 25 micrograms per 75 kilograms of weight. And so I probably got about 20 micrograms the first session, which is a high dose. I don't know exactly what that translates into. And then the second one was uh, thirty five they go to thirty five oh. micrograms per seventy five so it was a significant increase. It wasn't double as Bill Richards would tell me. He, he'd say there really is no no maximum dose for psychedelics, which is fascinating. there the, you know, there's stories of people who've taken like, a hundred acid tabs and, you know, they had quite an experience. It won't kill you. It won't kill you. But this dose was very high. So one of the things Bill Richards says is after a certain point, you're just pushed so far out beyond the edges of perception and reality that it becomes meaningless. It's really hard to bring something back. There's an upper limit to what they give you for these things so
0: it is johns hopkins after all that's right
1: yeah (laughs) yeah highly controlled situation Uh and so the second experience was just a whole other way of of experiencing whatever one encounters with these things if i weren't in the setting i was in i probably would have qualified primarily as a bad trip in some ways they don't like using that language in uh, these experimental settings. Sure. A uh, challenging experience is what they call it. But for this one, almost immediately, I felt like after I took the psilocybin, I felt like my body was disjointed, misplaced. Like my arms weren't in the right place. They felt like they were in different parts of my body. My legs, felt weird, like they were on backwards. One hand was sweaty. The other was dry. I couldn't tell if I was hot or cold. Uh, my clothes were incredibly uncomfortable and yet my bare skin didn't like being in the air. It was just, everything was messed up. And that just kind of got progressively worse to the point where I felt like I was in a um, tunnel of tentacles, like I was surrounded by tentacles, and that my my body was was like those little uh, sea anemones on the bottom of the sea, you know, mm-hmm. with the little fingers. That's what my body felt like. And each one of those those anemones are separate sensors and none of the information that I was receiving was good. It did not feel good at all. (laughs) To the point where I thought I was having an allergic reaction. I was pretty sure I was dying. I was glad I was like Uh 700 feet from the entrance to the main (laughs) hospital for Johns Hopkins. And it was really quite horrible. And finally, after, I don't know how long that went on, but Bill came over and sort of just had me push against his arm to try to kind of force my body into another state of being. And it did. And I went into this space, this tight, concrete space. It was sort of crushing. And I felt like it was another ego death. And by this time, I had started moving around. And when I came out the other side of that space, I was thrashing and making a lot of noise, breathing really heavily. Hmm. And I became a Mayan or an Aztec South American god. And I was over, you know, those playing fields in the Aztec, the old Aztec. Um, yes, the, the loser died. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And so I was over one of those big fields in a Mayan or an Aztec town and I was in the air over it and there was lightning shooting out of my hands and out of my eyes and my head. I felt pure anger and rage. I felt like I was like a war God or something. I really didn't have much consciousness of self Hmm. other than just this state of being that went on for a while, and I was thrashing around, and then that shifted, and I became a bull in a cage, a dungeon underneath a Colosseum in ancient Greece. Around the cage were what I understood later to be Christians who were also in the dungeon waiting to be, I don't know, fed the lions or whatever in front of the crowd in the Coliseum. Hmm. And they they were all praying for me and and trying to calm me down because I was slamming against the cage and it was wild. And during each of these events, if you I, I I no one asked me who are you or what are I don't know if I would have been able to answer who I was. In those moments, you know, other than the thing that I was doing and being, and then the bowl went on for a little while, and then it just sort of shifted into this column of smoke, and I became this godlike being, which I associated with Shiva, and I was moving these vast spheres around this huge space like planets, and the bowl was just pure rage and this being that I became all I was interested in was proportion and creativity what's the most creative placement of these these spheres in space or planets in the universe and uh, there's this very sort of creative kind of sense and then I just sort of blacked out and when I came to I looked around and and my first words were, what did you do to me? <laughs> to my guide, what did you do? to me? And, uh, you know, and I wasn't sure if I'd been dreaming or if I'd actually been doing this stuff, uh, but I hurt. I was really sore. And, um, they said, Nope, you were, you were moving around for quite a while there. And then again, we talked through stuff. I began to see a lot of Things about rage and creativity and my family of origin things, you know, uh, quite deep. I mean, my, my sense of psychedelics and what I've read of near-death experiences is that you, you are receiving information through channels that you don't normally receive information from, you know. And so it, it reconstructs how how you how you understand yourself and the world. For my second experience, I felt like our psyches are like these stacked blocks of different meanings and different experiences. And I felt like the things were being taken out and moved and put back in different places. <laughs> So that when I came out of it, I felt like my whole sort of psyche had been reconstructed and reshaped. And, you know, some of the blocks were left out and it was wild. And so I think part of the benefit of an experiment like this is for people who are attuned to the mystical, like uh, religious professionals. In this study, there was one Muslim woman quite a few different flavors of Christianity, and then a Buddhist priest and a significant number of various flavors of Judaism as well expressed. And so I just think the benefit of a study like this for people who haven't had the experience who go into this willingly is they bring a different culture to it. And so you're open to these experiences in a way that I mean, I think everyone's open to it mm. in their own way, obviously, but it just brings a different perspective to it that is informative.
0: Did you ever have a chance to sit together with the other experimenters? To uh, I did.
1: In fact, all of us who went through the study, none of us knew anyone who'd gone through the study beforehand, and it took almost... I didn't discover anyone else who'd gone through the study until almost a year later. Hmm. And it's primarily, I found out who another person who'd gone through the study through the work of one person, Brian mirror rescue is his name. He wrote a book called the immortality key, which is about early Christianity and the possibility, the potential likelihood that at least some parts of the Christian movement were using um, highly tainted wine for communion with psychoactive substances among them. Interesting theory. Yeah. And so anyway, I uh, reached out to Brian Mirror Rescue after his book came out in 2019. And through him, I got hooked up with another person who'd gone through the study. And then he and I sort of became a vector or a magnet. And so once a lot of us began to get together, we all wanted to meet one another and see who we were. And through the work of a group called River Sticks out in California, this great foundation run by a guy named Cody Swift, they put together a retreat for us Mm. that we just did in June of this year, the end of June. And so- Almost everyone who went through the study was at that retreat, and it was really great, a really neat experience to be with all the people who'd gone through it. Were any of your guides there? Yeah yeah no, they, they came too. They did
0: yeah now let, let me ask you, do you think the Johns Hopkins experience affected your faith in any way?
1: Yes, it did in an interesting a couple of interesting ways. The first thing I'd say, is that it deepened my faith. By that, I mean it confirmed may not be the best word to use. And I'll put it the way Peter Panagore puts it, which is Peter Panagore will often, when he talks to groups of people, he's spoken at our church a couple of times. He said, I don't believe in God and I don't have faith because I know. I know God and I, and I know What's awaiting me? And so he said, "I don't believe and I don't have faith because I know. Mm-hmm. I resonate with that. I would say my my psychedelic experience at Johns Hopkins moved the needle on my faith experience from uh, mere belief to knowing. You know, I feel like I know these things now. And of course, as you well know, it's not just Peter Panagore who says that. That's the common, thing that comes out of the NDE experience. You know, people know rather than merely believe anymore. And I feel that was part of my experience as well. And then, uh, you know, there's there's other aspects that had impacts on my faith life and my faith experience. But the very first one, even though I had no encounter with God, I had encounters with God's You know, I didn't see Jesus or anything like that. It still deepened my Christian faith. And then, you know, when when I spoke with my new Jewish friends who went through, it deepened their faith. My Muslim friend, it deepened her faith. You know, and so you have to be a pretty open person to participate in a study like this in the first place. And I have a pretty fluid understanding of truth anyway. And so I've never walked around saying Christianity is the truth, but I had a much more powerful sense that we exist in this field of truths that require us to talk with one another and communicate to discover meaning. And so my, my sense of truth became much more porous and much less committed to tenants. I'm not sure how to put it exactly, but I'm not committed to promoting Christianity as the truth. And you have to believe these particular truths within it in order to be a follower. But there is a truth that I can no longer sort of deny about my particular faith path, which confirmed for me parts of the faith that I would have just said, oh, yeah, I believe this. But now now I'm much more committed to it. And weird things, too, like the miraculous, the virgin birth. I don't even try to justify it. It's just sort of an acceptance of some of these things. And then the other strange thing is having become gods in my experience, I realized that even though I'm a practitioner of a monotheistic faith. the presence of God does not deny the existence of other gods that there's other gods and you know we the, there's metaphoric ways of talking about that certainly mm-hmm. that we call idolatry you know we make gods of politics, economics, violence, whatever it is. but there's also active agents beyond our, conscious awareness that are trying to influence us in this reality you
0: know (laughs) even the bible talks about god's plural yeah
1: absolutely so you know there's some interesting changes there and then just in terms of practical engagement with other people in terms of my getting up in front of people every sunday and preaching the gospel of which there's many meanings i do it with much more confidence and just here's this crazy story and let's see what's going on there and you know and kind of accepting what the story is presenting rather than trying to deconstruct it or even get hung up with all kinds of deep history with it it's just really attending to the extraordinary spiritual experience that's being expressed because and this is what i did my doctorate on Once you accept the extraordinary spiritual experience, that's all scripture is from the very beginning to the very end is one spiritual experience after another. Mm -hmm. What we do with that is we see the experience, we take our received theology or our trained theology and apply it to the experience that we're reading about. And then we make our decisions about the meaning of it. Based on that sort of feeding into it, instead of going the opposite direction, taking the experience as it's expressed and seeing how it changes how we think about all these things in and of itself. And it allows us to begin to hear other people's extraordinary spiritual experiences in ways that are different. So we're not bringing our own meaning that we desire to it. Instead, we take the time to try to discover the meaning together. There's a pattern that emerges from these experiences that is basically what my doctorate was all about, is that particular pattern for an extraordinary spiritual experience. So in that regard, it's a big change in how I understand my faith. And it changed how I talk about it, changes how I experience Experience and approach other people.
0: How does your congregation react to uh, a
1: more mystical tone to your sermons? They're very receptive of it. It took me a while. I've disclosed to my congregation what I actually did, you know, <laughs> with Johns Hopkins. I'm not sure that's the best approach for everyone who does something like <laughs> this. And a lot of people that went through the study will never tell their congregation, you know, they'll probably, they could easily lose their job because of the way their system is constructed and their oversight and all of that. But my congregation was surprisingly open and I led them up to it. I did a series of sermons that led into my disclosure of what I'd done. But prior to that, the shift in my preaching was distinct And well received by the church, for which I was grateful.
0: How do you suppose we could get more denominations to accept the reality of NDEs and personal mystical experience?
1: I thought about that a lot for my doctoral project and the book I'm trying to write about this. And really, I think from the outset, let's just, what do we do in a church? We worship God. And then, you know, if, you're a Christian, like I am, you know, you move that to another level. What do we say about the nature of God? The whole thing, the reason we're there is an extraordinary spiritual experience itself. I mean, you know, we have this whole story that we tell every Christmas and every Easter. That's just observably wild. It is a crazy story And it's an extraordinary spiritual experience in and of itself. And so I just think beginning there that we've already accepted an extraordinary spiritual experience just to gather together in this space. And then once you've made that move, beginning to understand that often people who are looking for a church are looking, let me put it another way. People, I believe, are looking to make meaning, and a lot of people have these experiences in their lives, or they know people who've had these experiences, and it's a very private thing. Most people don't share it in public, but it seems to me of all the places that would be the best possible place to share your extraordinary spiritual experience, your near-death experience, it would be in a church or a synagogue or a mosque, you know. And the challenge is once you bring that experience in, is to just be able to sit with the experience and listen and hear it rather than determining is it demonic or is it angel, you know?
0: Does it fit bring- the Orthodox belief? Yeah, right. Yeah, wh- whether it conforms to the denominational take exactly. on these things. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All that stuff gets put to the side and what we're doing is trying to make meaning of our experience relative to the greater experience that we've already agreed to and participate in, mm-hmm. you know, and depending on where you are on the spectrum in Christianity, some churches get up there every Sunday and say, this piece of bread in this cup here of wine or juice is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. You know, you, you've already made this incredible experiential spiritual claim. And then you move through the various beliefs of what's actually going on there. But regardless, we're gathering to honor an extraordinary spiritual experience. And if a church is anything, it's to provide the opportunity for all of us to participate in that experience, that one extraordinary spiritual experience by way of our own extraordinary spiritual experiences. So I don't really know how you get churches to be more open to these things, but I do think that what I just described there provides a good foundation for beginning to do that. Do you think the
0: writers of the Bible had any more contact with the other side than some of the personal mystical experiences we hear about today?
1: Oh, yeah. I think they were either telling their own extraordinary spiritual experiences like Paul yeah, or John in Revelation, for instance, or uh, they were communicating, or the prophets. The prophets are another great example. Or they they were telling the story of an extraordinary experience for others to hear. Moses and the burning bush. And if you just stay with the story of the burning bush and play it out from the story, just the words on the page, it changes how you perceive everything that comes after it. And in a way, all of scripture from the beginning of Exodus, all the way to the end of Revelation, is a way of trying to make meaning of what happened to Moses at the burning bush.
0: The fact that he turned aside, that he had to make a change in his direction, mm. and, then, and then suddenly he was standing on holy ground had to yeah. remove his sandals. Yeah. And the I am, of course. Right. The most powerful yeah. message to come out of that encounter, as right? Far as I can tell. Okay, now we take a leap since you mentioned the blue pill and the red pill. Yes. What's, what's your take on the nature of reality? Are we living in a matrix world in this life? Is it all a dream or is consciousness infused through the whole thing?
1: I lean more towards the latter, the consciousness infused through the whole thing idea. I have several things to say about that. One is I was listening to a podcast with an author named Gregory Burns, who's a neuroscientist and a psychiatrist. And he has a book out called The Self-Delusion. And this is an idea, he's expressing an idea that I've thought for a long time, but especially after my psychedelic experience, I've thought for a long time that we are many selves that tie our many selves together with one story. And it's that tying together with the story that we call Seth or Lee or you know, this unifying sense of the story that we tell of these multiple selves experiencing the world. So either we're a singular self experiencing multiple realities in these extraordinary spiritual experiences or psychedelic experiences, and uh, which could lead you to a sort of matrix kind of thinking or another possibility And I think there's multiple possibilities here, and both can be, all of these can be true at the same time as well. The other possibility is that multiple selves within a singular narrative will have very different experiences of one reality. And then how we tell that story is really where it becomes interesting, I think. I love the Matrix movies. I was deeply influenced by them. But I have to say, finally, my issue with that way of perceiving reality is that it allows fundamental judgments against other people to be made without any, any kind of consideration of how they're experiencing reality. Finally, you know, people are trapped in the matrix and they have to wake up. Mm -hmm. But I think it's much more likely that, that we all sort of exist in this shared dream space that has varying degrees of awareness of the nature of that space and uh, waking up is more a matter of becoming more aware of the dream we're all sharing with one another rather than, rather than waking up beyond that dream. It's a, it's a little, uh, as you well know, I mean, you know, we can get very particular about how we talk about these things, but, but it gets hazy around the edges, you know, <laughs> and, uh, but in some ways, thinking about it in the way I'm talking about it allows for a continual experience of meaning making with other people. Mm. And I, ju- I just think we participate in this communal event that we're all experiencing here. Part of my study with psychedelics and and with extraordinary spiritual experiences was in shamanic practices as well, in indigenous cultures. And I think it's probably good to think about the early parts of the Bible, the Jewish Testament, and even the beginnings of Christianity, to think of it more in terms of indigenous and sort of shamanic ways of thinking. And what I mean by that is not necessarily that they were shamanic faith traditions, but that in those traditions, the shaman goes out into the experience for the sake of the community. They would never do it just for their own individual knowing and knowledge. And uh, as with many NDE experiences, or uh the other one I think of often is uh, UFO abductions. Mm-hmm. when when people come back from those, they often have a very uh, deep sense of of being beholden to all of humanity that, that they the message they bring back or the awareness they bring back is a connection with the community of human beings and all living things. And that there's a fundamental purpose, in the extraordinary spiritual experience, that you are the experiencer, but what you're bringing back from it is not for you. It's, it's for others as much as for you. Exactly and, why I do this program. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just think that that awareness and that way of thinking undermines the whole sort of matrix and fantasy of this reality we're having real experiences we're real people doing real things here and it influences and we are influenced by other realities as well well every
0: near-death experience is so personalized for the experiencer that you can listen i've done about 500 shows now and every story is different absolutely the same basic reality that comes out of all of them, though, is that God is love.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That love yep. is love is the motivating force in the universe. That is the universe. Amen. So,
1: I'll take that. That sounds <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thank you, Seth. This has been terrific. Yeah. Uh, has thank been you great, for fun-ly. sharing yeah. your story and the after effects of it. It's uh, yeah. just wonderful.
1: In terms of all the. Stories you've heard in all your research. I mean, you know, you run a whole organization on near death experiences. The psychedelic experience, do you hear in it a lot of crossover with the near death experience as well? I mean, is there a lot of similarities? And um, I I
0: think it's a take of the same truth, but in more physical terms. In other words, Mm. it's heaven and hell, like your two experiences, but expressed. (laughs) For instance, heaven was Paris to Jim. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. hell was this exercise in anger and forceful power. The mm-hmm. demigods want of control. Yeah, and that says hell to me. Someone <laughs> on the other who has a near-death experience may experience, you know, demons are in a black space for hell, and God mm-hmm. being a god of light or a vision of Jesus. Yeah. So it's the same truth being talked to us through the environment. That mm-hmm. And the environment for psychedelics is the earth and for the yeah. NDE is for the other side.
1: Yeah. Oh, I like that. That's a nice way of saying it. Yeah. Anyway,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know you're going off to New York, you and your wife, and she's going to be at Riverside church. One of my favoriteest places in, yeah. in, in the world, especially in New York city. When I was at Columbia, I would go down and go up to the bell tower and practically lose my hearing listening to the (laughs) the bells going off. But if someone wanted to uh, follow up on this or get in touch with you, or Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you have a website or anything like that, that you could share Uh, with I
1: I have a website I'm rebuilding. I'll send you my contact information so you can put it in the show notes. But um, soon after my second experience, I bought the domain psychedelicpastor.com. And so I'm in the process of rebuilding that website and uh-huh. um, it is out there.
0: So they should jot it down, but don't try to use it just yet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Don't expect much from it. I have a few <laughs> things from a few years ago out there, but I'm, I'm going to be much more intentional about how it looks and how it's designed over the next few months. So great. Well, yeah. I look forward to it.
0: Great. I look forward to uh, talking with you again.
1: Yeah, that'd be wonderful.
0: <laughs> if listeners would like to hear this show again, or any of our more than 475 archived ad free NDE interviews, go to Talk Zone's NDE Radio site and hit the past Shows button, or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE Radio library. And be sure to check out our NDE Radio Facebook page. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. Listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.